0: Now, uh, we're continuing in Judges, and and actually we're wrapping up today, as Pastor David alluded to, we're wrapping up um, this series. And in this series, we've been talking about a couple of different things. And um, let's just, assuming I can get there. Yep, here we go. I just want to give you a quick recap, right? Because all of this plays together, and I want you to see how all of this works. And so uh, what, what it starts with... And this is how Pastor David started us in week one of this series. What it starts with is deciding that following God is overkill, right? We decide that following God is overkill, right? And so what we decide is that, yes, we know he's given us instructions and things to do, but we're going to stop short. And we have to be really careful here because this is where compromise and complacency kick in. But I want you to understand something, something that, that Pastor David talked about in week one. The issue here is not, I can't. It's not that I can't follow God. It's that I won't. And I won't because it feels like overkill. And so we stop short. And we talked about how um, when, when one generation gets complacent, and they tolerate idols, that we can't be surprised that the next generation embraces those idols. And that as soon as we start to to compromise, that the next generation will pay the penalty for that. But in the midst of all of this generational sin, we see a God in the story of the judges that will not give up, that continues to hound his people, to chase his people. Yes, to allow misery to be done to his people so that they will recognize the state of their lives that their sin has gotten them to and they will turn and go back to God. And you're like, well, that's a great story, but why isn't it just one generation long? Well, the problem is the people got really good at showing a little bit of remorse but not really repenting. And we see this in our own lives, right? What happens is we, we sometimes are sad that we got caught. We're upset at the position we find ourselves in. We don't like the feeling of guilt, but we're not really repenting. We're not really turning away from our sin and turning to God. We're turning our way from our sin long enough for the pain to stop. But then as soon as the pain is over, we, we turn right back to it. And then last week we, we saw, and this happened with the Israelites, that as soon as they stopped following God completely, as soon as they moved him out of the center, the authoritative position in their lives, right? that all of a sudden morality started to be wonky. And they could do things that seemed right to them that invariably left them feeling good, but moved them further and further away from God without even really realizing it. And when that happens, things get bad. And today we wrap up the series, uh, and, and, and as we wrap up, we're just gonna talk frankly and honestly about what happened with the Israelites and how they got from where they were. To hear, and we see this the cycle, but really it comes down to this one thing. They underestimated what their disobedience was doing to them. Okay, and I'm gonna tell you up front what I'm gonna do as we talk, you'll forget, so later I'll I'll do this, and you'll be like, oh yeah, that was a good point. But I told you now. But but here's the connection we're gonna make, right? Because the Israelites, time and time again. They underestimated what their disobedience was doing to them. And then they got to the end where they threw their hands up and they said, this is the worst place we've ever been. How did we get here? We can't believe it ever got this bad. And then I'm going to say something clever like, well, what about you? And we're going to have to talk about our own disobedience and how we underestimate it or make excuses for it or allow it. And where that leads us but you'll be surprised when we get there. So um, let's dig in. Let me ask you a question. First of all, boxing fans at all in the room? Really? Nobody here watches boxing? Well then let me introduce you to a guy named Mike Tyson. <laughs> Turns out he was a really good boxer. One of the best, right? And, and, and so Mike Tyson at, um, I believe it was 37 and 0 in 1990 in March, went to Tokyo for a tune-up fight. You know what a tune-up fight is, right? A tune-up fight is when you have a big fight on the horizon and, and you need something to keep you in shape, gearing up for the big fight. So he had a big fight with a Vandal Holyfield later in, in, in 1990, but in March of 1990, he had a tune-up fight against a guy, 42 to 1 underdog named um, James Buster Douglas. Some of you weren't alive in 1990. Some of you were. Who remembers this fight? Anybody? Yeah, right? It was a big deal. 42-to-one underdog. Um, Tyson, at 37 and0, right? This was not supposed to be a fight. Round one happened, and, and you, could, you could tell at the beginning that, that Douglas, although outmatched, was not afraid. And he was able to avoid the big punches. Tyson was notorious for knocking people out in round one. He was able to avoid some of the big punches, landed a few of his own, and, and, and by about the fourth or fifth round. Right, Mike Tyson's eye started to swell from a lot of the right jabs from James Buster Douglas. And, and here's the thing, they were so confident, they didn't bring the end swell kit to the ring. This is what the trainers use when you go over after the round is over to do the work on your face so that your eye doesn't swell up so bad that you can't see. They didn't bring it because they didn't think they needed it because they completely underestimated the opponent. And and by round nine, couldn't see, couldn't avoid, four straight jabs and an uppercut, and Tyson is out for the count. And James Buster Douglas, 42 to 1 underdog, becomes the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, and it lasted for like a week and a half. He lost very shortly after that. See, the, the truth is he had no business being in the ring with Mike Tyson. The problem is Mike Tyson thought the same thing, completely underestimated his opponent. And you're like, why are you telling me about boxing? One, because it's cool. I watched that fight. I remember, (laughs) right? I was like 14. I was, it was, it was a thing back then. All the boxing was on HBO and my parents had HBO so we could watch all the fights. Um, Here's the deal. We underestimate things all the time. And there is no quicker way to find ourselves in trouble laying flat on the canvas than to underestimate sin and disobedience. It's what the Israelites did. They underestimated every little step along the way. And it compounded and it compounded and it compounded until they found themselves in a place that they never thought they'd be. And we're going to read about that as as we continue um, in in the story of Judges. We're in the appendix section now. Remember, we talked last week that these last five six chapters are an appendix to the story. Um, and the last story in the appendix is weird. It's one you did not learn about in Sunday school, because in Sunday school we tend not to talk about these kinds of things, right? There was no—I mean, I don't even know how you would do a felt board thing of this. And if you don't know this story, you're going to find out why that's weird as we get going. Right. And if you had that Sunday school teacher, I guarantee you they were asked not to teach again. So we're going to dig in here, but, but here, here's this thing. I I feel compelled to put this little thing on the screen. You've seen it before. I've said it to you before. Every pastor has said it forever, Right. So it's not unique with me. Um, but it's this understanding. And this is where these little steps of disobedience happen. Sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you intended to stay. And it will always cost you more than you wanted to to spend. This is the reality with sin. And some of you know that, man, because some of you, some of you have found yourself in a spot where And maybe it's going on right now, right? Or maybe it's in your past, I don't know. But you found yourself in a spot where you've looked up and you've said, How in the world did I get here? Well, you got there because little disobediences end up costing you more than you think. And We see that here. Let's dig in. Judges 19. Go ahead and turn in your Bible. Some of it, a lot of it will be on the screen, but not all of it. Some of it you'll have to track on in your Bible with. But here's what it starts with. The first part of verse 1 starts In those days, Israel had no king. Now, this isn't a surprise. We know that Israel has no king. We've read that multiple times. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The point I'm trying to make here is that this is not just a historical statement, it is true that a generation from now, Israel will have a king because they will demand one. They will say, we want a king so that we can be like all of the other nations, right? But it's not like having a king all of a sudden fixes them, right? They're just as wonky with a king as they were without a king. They're just as disobedient. They wander just as much when they have a king as they don't. I think the point the author is making here is not just a historical point that, hey, this happened at a time when there was no king, It's also that they were supposed to have a king. It just wasn't a human king that they were supposed to have. See, Israel was supposed to be this thing called a theocracy. Israel was supposed to be a thing where everybody in the nation understood that the king, the ruler of Israel, was God Almighty. And they were all supposed to be following the king, God the king of the universe, the creator and maker and sustainer of all things, they were supposed to follow him. But instead of following him, little at a time, they became disobedient and they rejected and it felt like overkill. So they didn't. And so now the author can say in those times, legitimately, there was no king, not a human king. And there wasn't God either. They weren't following a king. We keep going. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went um, to to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. Uh, When he got to her home... She saw him, she took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. Right, And so here, here's the, the, the setup um, for this, this uh, narrative that's going to show us how badly they have underestimated their sin and where it's led them, is that we have a Levite. Now remember, the Levites are supposed to be assistants to the priests, assisting in the worship of God, and teaching the people the law of God. But we have a Levite that's not doing that, He's not teaching people the law of God. Instead, he's going to get himself a concubine. A concubine is kind of like a live-in girlfriend. Okay? Um, There are some legal rights for a concubine, uh, but it's not the same as being married. In fact, what happened oftentimes is people would have concubines um, to supplement their relationship with their wife. It's not something God ever said, do that. People just did it. And and, and it's certainly not okay for a man of God to be acting this way. Um, And and so um, he had this concubine and something went wrong in their relationship. The word tells us that she was unfaithful. What that means is she left him. She was unfaithful. Um, Here's the thing. I can almost guarantee you that that does not mean she was sexually unfaithful because everything we know about this Levite from the story that unfolds is if she had been sexually unfaithful, he would have killed her and been justified by the law of God to do it. And based on everything we know about him, that is is what he would have done. But when she was unfaithful, what it means is she broke covenant relationship with him and she left. We don't know why she did that, right? Possibly because he was abusive, I mean, that might stand to reason with what we know about him, possibly because he ignored her, possibly because she was jealous of another relationship that he had, right? I mean, concubines and wives, that's not the way it's supposed to work. So we see in scripture all the time that when that's the arrangement, jealousy comes up. But for whatever reason, she left. Now here's the catch. It took him four months to decide to go get her. He's like, I'm so concerned about her that I'll wait four months to go try to make things right. And so after four months, he goes and and the dad, stand up dude, welcomes him in. Come on in. And they eat and they get drunk. Here's what it says. His father-in-law, the woman's father prevailed on him. Stay, hang out. So he remained with him three days eating and drinking. Basically having a party. And sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early and prepared to leave. It's time to go home. But the woman's father said to the son in law, No, 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 no. Refresh yourself with something to eat. Then you can go. So what did they do? They sat down and they ate and drank again. Right? And then it was late all of a sudden. So the woman's father said, No, no, no. You better stay here again tonight. Enjoy yourself. You can leave early in the morning. Then, when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, the father in law, the woman's father said, Now look. It's almost evening, so spend the night here again. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way home. But right, this has happened now several days in a row where the plan has been to leave, right? But, but they, they eat and they drink all day. And then by the time he gets ready to go, he's like, well, I'm not going to get very far before it gets dark. I better stay another day. And then the, other, the next day, he starts to eat or drink again. And then by the time he gets ready to leave, it's late again. He's like, oh, I'm not going to get very far. He might as well stay another day. This time, he's like, no. I know I wasted most of the day, but I got to get home. So, he uh, unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward uh, Jabus, that is Jerusalem, with his two settled donkeys and his concubine. He left. Okay, Now, I'm, I'm just going to read for you here. Um, I, I didn't put it on the screen, but let me read for you what happens in the next few verses, starting in 11. When they were near Jabus and the, the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. The Jebusites were not Israelites. They, they were not part of the covenant community of God. And so the master replied, no, we won't go into that city where the people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah, right? He had to come, let, let's try to reach Gibeah or, or Ramah to, to spend the night in one of those places. So they went on and the sun set as they neared Gibeah and Benjamin. There they stopped for the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. See, this is what they would do. When you were traveling, you would go into town and you would go to the center of town. Usually the well was there, but, but you would go into the center of town and you would wait And the common custom for hospitality was somebody was supposed to see you there and come to you and say, don't stay here, come home with me and you can stay in my home and I will take care of you for the night. You'll be under my protection. I will um, be responsible for you. That was the common custom of hospitality. So they went to the square, but nobody took them in for the night. Later that evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim who was living in Gibeah uh, where the Benjamites were, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where do you come from? Where did you, where are you going? He answered, we are our away from Bethlehem and Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I've been to Bethlehem and Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys, bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. And you can see on the screen, it picks back up. And the man says, well, hey, you're welcome to stay with me. Let me supply everything you need. Basically saying, I want to be hospitable. I want to practice good hospitality. Yeah, you've got straw. Yeah, you've got wine and food, whatever. But let me give you everything you need. Don't spend the night here in the square. So he took them to his house, fed his donkeys. And after they'd washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. You'll notice they eat and drink a lot in this story. Here's where it gets wonky. I know some of you are thinking it was already wonky. I know, but, but here, here's, where, here's where it gets R-rated. So, I mean, it's not too late, kids. You can go downstairs if you want. While they were enjoying themselves, eating and drinking, some of the wicked men of the city, these are God's people now. This is the tribe of Benjamin in the town of Gibeah, right? These are, these are covenant community Israelites who belong to God and they know it. But while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, pounding on the door. They shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Now, some of you are remembering that that same story happens in Genesis, right? In Sodom and Gomorrah. Where, where the men come to Lot's house and bang on the door, demanding that he send out the men that are there. Really, they're angels. The men just don't know it. Send them out so we can have sex with them. And you're like, wait a minute. That's weird. Yes, it is. Contextually, though, here's what you have to understand. This is not altogether uncommon. There's a reason that the Levite did not want to stop in the town of the Jebusites. There's a reason he wanted to get to a town where the covenant people of Israel lived, right? Because this kind of thing was not uncommon in other towns. Because what this was, this was a show of force. This wasn't about sexual gratification, at least not, not um, entirely. It was more about we're powerful and we know it. We can do what we want This is our place, not yours, right? This was the way that they demonstrated that they were a town to not be messed with. This was the custom of the Canaanites, of the Canaanites, not the Israelites. So they bang on the door and and they demand that guy that's in your house, that Levite, send him out because we want to sexually violate him. I mean, like, like you can use other words to fill in the blank of what that means, right? But, but we want to sexually violate him. Why? To prove that we can. To demonstrate our masculinity and our manhood and to serve as a warning for other people who might want to come in our town that this is not for them. And the owner of the house, of course... Um, trying to be a, 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 good, um, a good hospitable host for his guests, goes out and says, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Now, right away, you're like, oh, good guy. He's going out there to defend them. No, don't do such an evil thing. This is terrible. You're Benjamites. You're part of Israel. You're not Canaanites. Knock it off. Right? You're like, man, good job, guy. Except then he follows it up with this awful thing. No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since the man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look rape my virgin daughter instead and this man's concubine you can have them but just leave the guy alone and we're like well time out what in the world is that about but it's what they do i'll bring them out to you now and you can use them and do listen to me this is the word of god saying this right i'm not just trying to make it worse than it is here's what the man says You can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the man wouldn't listen. So the man took his concubine, the one that he loved so much that he waited four months to go chase her down. So the man took his concubine and basically he shoves her out the door and shuts it behind her sending her out there so that he'll be safe. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And then finally at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. Right? So so not only did he send her out there, he is so unconcerned, he just went to bed. Right, Because we, we, we know he's not watching for her. Because if he was watching for her, when she came back and fell down at the door, he would have opened the door and brought her in and tended to her. But no, she just falls down and lays there until daylight. We keep going. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way... There lay his concubine fallen in the doorway, right? He doesn't even bother to go until it's time for him to leave. Like, is he even going to take her with, right? Or is he just like, oh, well, she's lost. What a wasted trip. But when he gets up to leave, he opens the door of the house. He stepped out to continue on his way. And there she lays fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. So in his best loving, I'm a man of God attitude, he says to her, get up, let's go what are you doing? But there was no answer. Well, we're going to find out in a second. There's no answer because she died laying on that threshold waiting for someone to care for her. So he picked her up and put her on on the donkey and he set out for home. And you're like, Matt, this is bad. And I'm like, church, yeah, it is. And I want to point out something to you. How did we get here? How did we get to the point where the men of God are acting this way? Where a tribe in the covenant community of God is acting this way? Like, there's no one innocent in this story. Not one. But maybe the concubine. I guess, yeah, let, let me go back. The concubine, she didn't do anything wrong right? She, she apparently was along for the ride, right? Some of you might say, but Matt, she was unfaithful to her husband. Yeah. Okay. I, again, I, I go back to that and I'm like, I don't know the details, but I'm fairly certain she was fleeing something awful. Um, but we don't know for sure. But certainly in this scenario, all she was doing was going home with um, the person um, that was supposed to love and protect her. And he threw her to the wolves and didn't care one little bit. How do we get here? Little disobediences. You know, you, you, because I bothered to tell you a story about Mike Tyson and Buster Douglas, I have to now use the analogy until we're done with it, right? Little jabs. And each little jab doesn't feel like that big of a deal. Oh, well, it's just a punch. Shake it off. Keep going. But round after round of little jabs, little disobediences, little things, all of a sudden the eye is swelled shut and you can't see This is what happens to the Israelites. You remember way back, Pastor David told us this in week one of the series, Judges 129. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. This is a Canaanite custom. This is a Canaanite tradition. When you went into a Canaanite town, man, you you were real careful. Because this was their way of being. This was not unusual for them to act this way. They were not known as hospitable people. They were known as violent. Sometimes we wonder, why does God want them to drive all of these people out? Right? Is God being mean? Is God being harsh? Is God showing favoritism? Like Why is it that God says, hey, I want you to come in and move into their land? What did they do wrong? Well, this is part of it. This was their regular custom along with other detestable things, sacrificing their children, engaging in unspeakable behaviors in the name of religious expression. But this was part of it. This is the way they treated strangers in their town. And God said, drive them out completely. I'm giving you the land, it's flowing with milk and honey, it's established, it's settled, you are my covenant community, you must drive them out completely. But Ephraim, they thought, eh, that feels like overkill. I mean, we pushed them back, and we made them our slaves, isn't that good enough enough? but God had already told him it wouldn't be good enough. Here's what God said in Numbers before they even entered the land. When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images and their cast idols. Demolish all their high places. But if you don't, if you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you will live. I mean, God told them, if you don't drive them out, it is going to cause you a world of tragic consequences and hurt. And then what do we read? Ephraim didn't do it. It felt like overkill. They didn't drive the people out of the land. There's something I need you to understand here. And, and, and as we, as we get into this, this, As we, I guess I'm sorry, get into as we wrap up this series, we've been talking about the fact, right, that the problem of the Israelites and the problem that we struggle with is that we want to do whatever seems right to us. Whatever seems right to us, we want to do. And we feel like when God gives us all of these instructions and all of these things, like it's overkill, like it's a problem. And so just a little disobedience won't matter, right? Because that's extreme. We don't want to be extreme, so a little disobedience won't matter. And all the while, we forget that the reason God gives us these things is for us. That he's protecting us, not hurting us. That he's not robbing our joy, but that he's giving us goodness from himself. God doesn't give us instructions and laws because he's trying to restrict your fun. He's not trying to rob you of joy. He gives them to you because they're good for you. We've talked about this before, but it, it, it's like the rules you give your little kids. I remember um, Aubrey's downstairs in the nursery with Carrie, so I wouldn't even have to pay her. But when we were in Bettendorf and Aubrey was learning how to ride a bike, and you've heard me talk about Aubrey learning how to ride a bike, it was a long, slow, painful process. But she finally got good at it. And we lived on a street that she could ride her bike up and down the sidewalk, and it was awesome. But at the end of that street was a street where she could not ride her bike up and down the sidewalk. It was a busy road. In case you're ever in Bettendorf, it's called Spruce Hills Drive. And if you're ever on that road, you're like Spruce Hills Drive, you're like, whoa, I can't believe that Aubrey at six was trying to ride her bike up and down the street, right? But we always told her, listen, you can ride up and down Westmar Drive. That was our road, Westmar Drive, all the way to the end, all the way back again. But you cannot, you cannot under any circumstances, take your bike on Spruce Hills Drive. We didn't do that to rob her of joy. We did that to protect her. Because we knew better than she did. But what did she think? Man, what is on Spruce Hills Drive that they're trying to keep me from? Is there like free ice cream? Are the sidewalks paved with candy? Like something magical must be on Spruce Hills Drive. Otherwise they would never try to keep me from it. She got down there one time. Scared the daylights out of her. Because all of a sudden there's no sidewalk and there's a lot of cars and they're not looking for a little six-year-old girl on a pink bike with tassels. We put these things in place for her because we love and want to protect her, not because we're trying to restrict her from something. Why would we assume God's ways are any different? When God says drive out the Canaanites, yeah, maybe it feels like overkill, but do it. Because God knows better than you. When God says, have nothing to do with them or their ways, he means it. Not because he's being picky and hard to get along with, but because their ways are awful. And they will lead you to a place you never wanted to be. That's exactly what happened. Instead of driving them out, the Ephraimites let them stay. And they learned from them. And they adopted their wickedness. To the point where 400 laters, they're, 400 years later, they're, 400 laters, 400 years later, just give me a second. 400 years later, they're taking the Levite, they're saying, bring him out here. We would like to gang rape him until morning to show him who's in charge. And you're like, Matt, that's a tragic story. I'm like, yeah, church, it is. It gets weirder. This is how the Levite responds. He picked her up. He threw her on the back of the donkey. And when he reached home, he took a knife and he cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts. And he sent them and he wrote letters about what happened. And he sent them into all areas of Israel. Like, Matt, that's weird. Yeah, I know. But listen to this, everyone who saw it was um, saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine we must do something. So speak up. So let me paraphrase. Here's what happened. Um, he, he cut up the body into 12 pieces and he wrote 12 letters and he packaged them up and he sent one to every tribe of Israel. Right? And, and, and then the leaders of the tribe would take the package and they'd open it up and they'd take out the body part and they'd go, that's weird. And they'd set it down and then they'd open up the letter and they would read it and, and basically they would shake their heads and they would say, how did it get this bad? We never thought it could come to this. And we don't have time for the rest of the story, but I do want to give you the highlights because it goes from weird to weirder. So the 11 other tribe, the 11 other tribes make a pact that they are going to go to war against this Benjamite community. And that any of the clans that don't come with them, they're going to kill them all. This is so bad. They say, this is so bad that if you refuse to come fight with us, as soon as we're done with them, we're coming after you. And they tell the tribe of Benjamin, hey, give up the wicked people in that city. And the tribe of Benjamin's like, no. No bro, leave us alone. So there's a civil war that breaks out and all but 800 men of Benjamin, this mighty tribe of God, this one of the 12 tribes of Israel, 800 men are all that's left and they run and hide in the wilderness. And so the people that are left, they're like, okay, we're done. We're done killing them, but here's what we're going to do because we're going to make them die out. So they made a vow with one another that you better not give them your daughters in marriage because then they won't have children, they won't have offspring, and as a a tribe, they'll die. And they're like, okay, we all make this vow with each other. If we break the vow, you could kill us. And then after a while, they start to feel sad about their vow. They start to feel sad about their vow because, wait a minute, God made 12 tribes and we just decided to kill one of them completely we'll never be whole again. And so they make a plan. They're like, okay, well, hey, well, time out. Which which clan didn't come? Did all the clans come and help us like we said? No, there's this one clan over here that didn't. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, instead of killing them all like we promised, we're going to kill man, woman, and child, except for the virgin daughters. We'll kill everybody. Then we'll take the virgin daughters and we'll, they're not our, they're not our daughters, and we'll give them to Benjamin They're like, okay, that's a great plan. So that's what they do. Except the problem is there weren't 800 of them. So then they're like, well, that's not going to work. We need more virgin daughters, but we can't give our daughters away. So here's what they do They're like, well, we won't give them away. What if we let them kidnap them? So they make a plan. They're like, hey, girls, come have a party. It's just a fun party. We'll light a fire. You can all dance around. It'll be great. And then they tell the Benjamites, we're going to turn our backs. You go take the one that you like and run away with her and kidnap her, and we won't chase you. We promise. That way we didn't actually break our commitment. You kidnapped them. We just don't really care enough about it to fix it. This is weird. We read this story. This is how the story of Judges ends, right? That, That 400 years after God said, take it, it's yours. I give it to you. A little disobedience at a time, a little disobedience at a time, and it just kept going, and then we get here. We get here. How? Because they decided God's ways were overkill. And they started to do whatever they wanted. And guys, I'm going to tell you, it adds up. It adds up. And you get to a place where you never thought you'd be. And this is how the author ends the whole thing. In those days, just in case you haven't heard this before, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And when they're away from God, what they see fit to do is weird and wrong and wicked. So now we're almost out of time. My, my clock says I've got two minutes left. Your clock says I'm, I'm like four minutes over. I'm going to go with mine. I'm going to go with my clock. Um, and and so we're almost out of time here and and here's what you're like, okay, matt So what's the point? Why are we learning about the judges? Yeah, it happened a long time ago People did weird things other than just knowing about the judges. What's the point? The point is we do the same thing Remember I told you earlier I was going to tell you that but you were going to forget You're like, oh wow. No doesn't matter. We do the same thing A.W. Tozer says it like this. We've talked about it before What comes into our minds when we think about god is the most important thing about us What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I want to ask you just very simply, do you, like legitimately, and I'm asking you to really think about this for yourself, do you completely trust God? Do you find God to be trustworthy? The Israelites did not. They didn't find God to be trustworthy. They found God to be trusted, kind of. They found that God was someone that could be trusted a little bit and followed a little bit. But they didn't find him completely trustworthy, and it showed when they stopped following because it felt like overkill. Paul says it this way to Timothy. Talking about the last days, And there's a lot more descriptors in there, but he says people will be lovers of themselves. They'll have a form of godliness, but they'll deny its power. And I'm asking you, are there some of you here that don't trust God completely? Do you have a form of godliness, but deny its power? Are you going through the motions? Or do you trust God? that God is good and he is right and he is for you. Because here's the problem. A lot of us will say we believe God, we trust God completely, but then we go act like we don't. We act like the rules and the laws and the things he puts in place are there to restrict us, not help us. Um, But listen, I, I just want to give you a couple things to think about as we close. God doesn't ask you to be faithfully and consistently connected to church because he's trying to rob you of joy on a Sunday morning. He's not trying to keep you from the lake. He's not trying to keep your kids out of um, professional sports leagues, right? He's not trying to keep you from sleeping in and enjoying some family time. God asks you to faithfully and committed be a part of a church community because he does not want you to serve the God of self, because he wants you to be connected at a place where you can honor and worship him. And that is the priority over anything else you might throw in there. That is what God asks, right? He's not robbing from you. He wants to give you. God isn't telling you to have sex only in marriage because he's trying to rob you of the joy of sex. God's telling you to reserve sex only for your marriage, right? Because he wants you to understand the commitment that it takes and the binding that it does to bring you together with somebody when you enjoy that intimacy in a covenant-committed relationship. And he doesn't want you to get hounded by the temptation and the lust that happens when you let that stuff in. That's for your benefit. Again, so that you're not serving the empty God of self, right? God God doesn't want you to forgive people that hurt you because he wants to make light of your pain. God tells you to forgive people that hurt you fully. Because he does not want you to be eaten up by the bitterness and anger that comes from dwelling on pain that he's already paid for. Do we really trust God? Or do we talk about God and have a form of godliness and completely deny its power? And I'm going to tell you, listen, I can't answer that question for you. I can only answer that question for me. And all too often I screw it up and I've got a form of godliness, but I deny its power. And if that's you, then all I can do is ask you to confess it and fix it because little disobediences, you underestimate how significant they are, but they will lead you to a place where you don't want to be. Heavenly father, God, you are good, gracious, and kind, and we love you. Thank you so much for your word and thank you so much for the understanding that you are faithful and true and that you put restrictions and boundaries and and you call us to obedience not because you're trying to control us and not because you're trying to rob us but because you want us to experience freedom and fullness that comes from following you. Father, help us to not play at Christianity. Help us to not dabble. Help us to not have a form of godliness that denies its power. Help us to stop going the way that we think will make us happy while rejecting what you've given us. God, that will bring us joy and fellowship with you for eternity. God, we love you and praise you. Amen.